Sometimes it is tough to stay awake, isn't it? So you're telling me in about 20 minutes or so, my head is likely to be bobbing either forward or to the side. We've all struggled through a sermon at some point in our life trying to stay awake. There's even a story in the Bible, in the book of Acts, about a man who fell asleep during a sermon and died as a result. Let that be a lesson to you. Though he had an excuse, of course, Paul preached until midnight, and then Paul raised him from the dead, but I do not have that kind of power. You know, for me, the hardest time to stay awake is in the afternoon when I am making my shut-in visits. I've had a good lunch, my stomach is full, I go into a home where the thermostat is set on 80 or above, and I have a hard time staying awake. It's not a matter of the conversation. It's certainly not an issue with who I am visiting. It is just part of the circumstances. I had a class my senior year in high school that I had to take, though I really didn't belong in the class. It was a very easy class, but I had to take it to finish up my requirements. It was a sociology class. And the the teacher really didn't care what we did as long as we weren't disruptive. So literally, most every day, I tried to sleep. I put my head on the desk and tried to take a nap during that particular class. Now, I'm not encouraging that. I'm just telling you what I did. The problem was there was another guy in the class named Alan. And he liked to participate. So every time the teacher would ask a question, the other Alan would raise his hand and the teacher would call out the name Alan and I would have to pick my head up from the desk just to make sure he wasn't talking to me. Needless to say, the other Alan was not among one of my friends. (laughs) Your struggle to stay awake may not come in church today. It may not be in the classroom this week. It may not be while visiting a shut-in, it might be during a football game or during a play. It might be after a long day of work or an early morning or late night drive when even the coffee is not doing the trick. The circumstances may be different, but we can all identify with the struggle to stay awake when we know we're not supposed to be sleeping. In fact, as we move into chapter 14 in the next couple of weeks, we're going to come to that pivotal section of the gospel that you probably remember where Jesus takes his inner core of the disciples, the three men that were closest to him, and he calls them away with him and asks and commands them to pray with him. And they struggle to stay awake. In fact, five times in chapter 14, they are reprimanded for not staying awake. Now, last week we looked in the first half of Mark chapter 13, and we, we saw that the pivotal phrase, it's one word, was the phrase, be on your guard. That was the key term that was repeated three times. Well, today we have a different key word. Today, this word is repeated multiple times in our text. So before I read the whole text, I want to show you this particular word. In verse 33, we find the word keep awake. Or verse, verse 33, it says, be on guard. That's the word from last week. Then keep awake. Then three times after that, it's a slightly different word, but same idea. 
Verse 34, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. So my title this morning is simply, Stay Awake. And you realize that I am not talking about physically struggling with sleep. Rather, we're talking about spiritual alertness in light of the future return of Christ. Because Christ is coming again, we must stay awake. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." Now, we should stay awake, first of all, because Jesus is coming. The study of eschatology, that is the last times or end times, is often either abused or neglected. As we talked about last week, some people want every detail. They want all the dates. They want all the descriptions. And if they can't find them in Scripture, then they simply make them up in their imagination. A fascination with all things end times is not healthy for present-day obedience. But the opposite is also true. The opposite extreme, extreme is a neglect in this part of our theology. And if we have no thought of last things, if we don't acknowledge and anticipate the coming of Christ, then everything today is in the hands of humans and we live for ourselves and only for today. The fact of the matter is most of us instinctively realize that something must change. Deep down we know, and we say it in things like this. We say, you know what, they will get what they deserve someday. If we see someone commit a crime and we feel like they are getting away with it, justice is not being served, we say they will get what's coming to them. And that is a way of saying that we believe there is coming a time when God will set all things right, that justice will be served. And so a solid and sure hope in the future coming of Christ is essential for life and faithfulness in the present. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, you know we are studying the Apostles' Creed. 
It is a summary from years ago, back in the 300s, a summary of Orthodox Christian faith that has stood the test of time. And this past Wednesday night, we looked at the fact that Christ not only suffered and died and was buried, but then He rose again and He ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And then this coming week, we're going to look at the next statement, and just after the creed says He has ascended to heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father, it says He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Our text makes it clear that this event will occur after the time of tribulation that we looked at last week, a time of unprecedented and unparalleled human, uh, unparalleled in human history. Never before, never after will there be such a time as this. So clearly, verses 24 through 27 speak of a future time in history. This is not going back to Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when the city and the temple was destroyed. And almost all of this material is drawn from Old Testament scriptures. It is either quoted or alluding to Old Testament passages. This will be a time preceded by cosmic chaos. The very things God put in place in creation, the sun, moon, and stars, will no longer perform their creative functions. People then and now continue to believe that the stars play a a part, have an influence in human affairs. So people look to their horoscopes. They get up every morning and they read the paper and look at their horoscopes to see what the future is going to hold. But in the future, all such powers, real or imagined, will fail. And this will be the ultimate sign that Christ is set to return. So how will Jesus come? Well, before I get into that, I want to remind you of how He lived and died. We have seen much of that in this Gospel of Mark. We have seen that Jesus lived humbly, something we've seen throughout. We will see in the coming weeks that He suffered quietly, refusing to defend Himself against His accusers. We will also see that He died in isolation, that is, all of the disciples forsake Him and flee. He even cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could even talk about how he came the first time, humble and in a stable, something we study and look at every Christmas. He did not come with festivities and fanfare fit for a king. He came humbly. And in contrast to all of this, both his first coming and his life, we will see in his second coming that when he returns, he will not come humbly. He will come in power and in glory. The text says He will come in clouds. That is no doubt a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. We know that clouds throughout the Scriptures are often symbolic of the presence and the glory of God. We see this most notably in the Old Testament story of the Israelites during their wilderness wandering days. The cloud uh, over them was the presence of God, and when it left, uh, they followed. And this coming in power and glory will put an end to the veiledness that we've seen throughout this gospel. We've talked repeatedly about what we've called the messianic secret. Time and time again, when Jesus would do something or say something, He would tell His disciples not to tell people who He was. 
because there were so many misconceptions at that point as to what the Messiah was going to do and be that he told them not to say anything. As we come to the end of the gospel, that is indeed changing. In fact, no longer is he telling them to be quiet, but as we come to the end of the gospel, we'll, we'll hear him say, go and tell, the Great Commission, that we're to go tell everybody who Jesus is. But that will not be an issue when he comes again. All of that veiledness, all of the, the eyes that cannot see will, will see that Jesus comes in power and in glory. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. That's not what I'm trying to say. It doesn't mean that everybody will understand what is taking place, but it does mean that everyone will see him coming. His glory will be evident. The glory that Moses was only allowed to see a glimpse of. You remember that story? Moses wanted to see the glory of God, and God said, it's not possible. I'll just show you a little bit of it, but it's not possible for you to see it in its fullness. But when Jesus comes, he will come in power and in glory. Now, what will he do when he comes? Well, we certainly know from other scriptures that he will come to judge. He will come to condemn evil and put an end to suffering. We know that he will come to establish a new heaven and a new earth. We know that he will come to fully and finally establish the kingdom of God. You remember way back in the first chapter of Mark, Jesus said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. His coming inaugurated the kingdom, but it did not finally and fully bring it to an end. But when Christ comes again, the kingdom of God will be fully and finally established. But none of those things are mentioned in this text, reminding us that in order to fully get a grasp of what the Bible has to say about end times, we have to look across the Scriptures. We have to look at multiple Gospels and certainly epistles as well. And even then, as we mentioned last week, much of it is still a mystery to us. But the one thing that is mentioned in this text, Christ will come in power and in glory, and when He comes, He will gather His elect. Several times recently, I've been asked the question, are only the elect in heaven? And the answer is yes, because the word elect is simply another word of saying the saved, those who are the children of God. Now, I'm not talking about election. I'm not talking about the process of salvation. I'm not, I'm not even getting into the debate about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how those two things come together. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply using the word that Mark uses here, and he says God will come in Christ and gather his elect, that is, those of us who are the children of God, scattered all over the globe. You can imagine how this would have been an encouragement to the Jews as they were scattered in A.D. 70. They needed to know that the destruction of the city and the temple that they held so dear was not going to be the end for them. Instead, they were not going to be permanently dispersed. They were going to be regathered. The remnant theology that we see throughout the Old Testament, that God always has His remnant that He will gather together. But you remember that Mark is not writing primarily to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. So this is not just an encouragement or a promise to Jews. This is a promise that God will come and gather His children from wherever they are. That's what verse 27 means. No matter where we've scattered around the world, when God in Christ comes, He will gather us together. He has not forgotten you. It may seem like that sometimes. In the midst of your present circumstances, you may wonder if God has forgotten about you. God has not abandoned you. He has promised His presence now, 
And when he comes in the future, he is promised here in this text to gather us together that we might be with him forever. In that great passage in John chapter 14, a passage I use oftentimes in funerals, Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. So stay awake. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will come in power and in glory, and he will come to gather his people to himself. Secondly, we need to stay awake because his word is sure. This middle section, verses 28 through 31, is the most difficult to interpret, uh, and that is true for several reasons. One of the reasons is it depends on your overall eschatology. That is, it depends on your viewpoint of what the Bible says about the end times overall. So you're going to bring that into this text and interpret these verses in light of what you believe overall about the coming of Christ. Now, the basic interpretation in these verses Uh, basic interpretive issue is once again whether verses 28 through 31 are talking about the future return of Christ or whether whether these verses are now going back to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Some commentators say the phrase these things that you see there in verse 29 takes us back to Jerusalem because that's the same phrase that was used in verse 4. And so they interpret these verses in that way, saying that verse 24 says those days, and that's a different phrase, so they're talking about different times. This view certainly makes it easier to interpret verse 30. Others, of course, say that these verses still refer to the end of time, and therefore we must look for a different interpretation of verse 30. But let's tackle the easier portion of this section first. There is another lesson to be learned from the fig tree. This is a different lesson than the one we learned earlier. You remember on Monday of Passion Week, after Jesus had done the triumphal entry on Sunday, and he goes back out to Bethany, coming back on Monday morning, he sees a fig tree that has no fruit, and he curses it. And later, when they come back, they see that that fig tree has indeed died. And there was a lesson to be learned there about, the, about Israel and their fruitlessness and what Jesus was going to do when he came to the temple. But that's not the lesson that we see here. This is an entirely different lesson. The fig tree here is just an example of the fact that summer is near. The fig tree is one of the few trees in Palestine that is not an evergreen. In other words, it loses its leaves in winter. But when spring rolls around, the sap begins to flow through the branches again, softening them, and the leaves begin to appear. In fact, in all likelihood, since this is near Passover, it was probably spring when Jesus made that statement. So like he often did and was very good at, he was probably pointing at the very thing he was talking about. Look at that fig tree, he says. Do you see the leaves already starting to form on that fig tree? That is a clue to you that summer is near. When you see the leaves, you know that summer is near. So just as a fig tree with leaves points to the beginning of summer, so he says these events that we've seen point to the future as well. Whether, again, that, depending on your interpretation, whether that's the fall of Jerusalem or the return of Christ, or as we mentioned last week, in some sense there can be a double fulfillment. That is, it was partially in the near term fulfilled in AD 70 and only fully fulfilled when Jesus comes again. All of that then gets us to verse 30. 
and the possibilities or problems of interpretation we find there. Verse 30, Jesus says, and this generation will not pass away until these things are fulfilled or come to pass. Now, there are multiple options here. Number one, Jesus could have simply been wrong. Jesus made a mistake, a misunderstanding, said the wrong thing. Now, we're not going to take that option, are we? Because if we take that option, Jesus is no longer God and Scripture is no longer inspired and authoritative. So while there are some who would say that, hopefully that is none of us, leaving us then with two other options. The most natural way to use that phrase is to use it to refer to the generation that Jesus is speaking to, that is the ones who were presently living and will witness the destruction of the city and the temple. And again, this is perfectly fine if these verses refer to that event. But if these verses refer to the end time when Christ returns, then we must interpret this generation in another way, talking about those who see the signs. That is, the generation that sees the signs will also be the generation that sees Christ return. But hopefully I haven't confused you. I want to talk now about the things that we know for certain in these verses. And what we do know for certain is that the words of Jesus will come to pass. That is, stay awake because His Word is sure. The stars will fall, the sun and the moon will no longer give their light, but the words of our Lord will abide forever. There are very few things in life that are a sure thing. Though, of course, we often think otherwise. We have our plans. If you were to pull out your calendar now, you would find the events and Uh, things you have to do this week that are put on your calendar, the things coming up in the next month, and you put them on your calendar assuming that they're all going to happen just as you have calendared them. And yet the Bible itself tells us we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen. We think we know how the week's going to go, but tomorrow morning when we wake up, it might be totally different than we ever thought. And if we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, We certainly don't know all the details of the end times, but this we do know with certainty. The words of Jesus will remain, which, of course, in this context means that He is sure to come again, which, again, is why we must stay awake. By the way, this is a tremendous claim on the part of Jesus. It is a claim of authority. It is, in reality, a claim of deity. I mean, who else could say, my words will never pass away? Nobody but God can say that, and that's exactly what Jesus says. This also means that His words are the most important thing for us to hear and to heed. They are our only sure foundation for the future. So we need to stay awake, number one, because Jesus is coming, and number two, because His word is sure. Thirdly, we need to stay awake because His timing is unknown. If we knew the exact timing that Jesus would come again, there's no need to be vigilant. We don't have to stay awake and alert. If we knew the date and the time, then we could just get ourselves ready a few minutes or hours before that, and we wouldn't have to always be alert. But we don't know that time. When I was in seminary, I rented a house from a lady who who, uh, lived, uh, for the most part, on the White River in in Arkansas. But she kept the house in Memphis and rented it to me and some other guys so that someone would be there and could keep it up. She kept the master bedroom and came into town two or three times a year. 
But she always called before she came. She always called us a couple of days in advance to let us know she was coming. And do you know why? Because she didn't want to show up to her house and find it a mess. Because she knew single guys were living there, and in all likelihood, it would not be picked up and cleaned. So she gave us a warning so that we could be prepared and she could find her house like she wanted to find it. God does not give us that kind of warning when it comes to the return of Christ. That is why we must always be alert. We must always be prepared, spiritually alert, so that because no one knows the exact time. Now, some are troubled by the thought that Jesus himself says, I don't even know the time. They say that that's a problem for Jesus to be ignorant of that particular detail. But I remind you that the struggle is not as difficult as it seems. You know, we believe that God is omniscient. That is, God is all-knowing. So you say, Jesus is God and God is all-knowing. How could Jesus not know the time of his return? And the answer is the incarnation. That is the coming of Christ to be a man. In certain sense, when he became a man, he set aside some aspects of his deity. And so the incarnation explains how he could make a statement like that. And then he gives us an illustration, the illustration of a homeowner who goes on a journey leaving his servants to run his affairs. They each have their own work to do, their assigned tasks to perform, but specifically there is a doorkeeper, and the doorkeeper has one task and one task only. The doorkeeper is to watch, to watch for the return of the master. The master can return at any point during the day. Four watches are listed. That's the way the Romans did it. Again, Mark is writing to Gentiles. Jews only had three watches in the day, but Mark lists all four because he's got a Gentile audience. The point is that they are to be constantly watching and ready when the master comes. So what exactly does it mean to stay awake? That's what we've been talking about this morning, but what does it mean? We've already said that clearly Jesus is not talking about physical sleep or lack thereof. But surely it's not talking about camping out on a hillside looking to the skies all the time either. It's about being spiritually alert and active. We each have our own work to do, our spiritual service that God has gifted us to perform. Yours is going to be different than mine, but we all have uh, gifts that we use in God's service. That is what we must be engaged in as long as He gives us the ability to do that or until He comes again. And part of staying awake and watching is doing what God has called us to do, being at our station, serving in His kingdom. I think we can also say that staying awake simply means prioritizing our spiritual lives. If being asleep is symbolic of spiritual sluggishness, then being awake stands for spiritual vitality and life. So I think staying awake means being at our assigned task, doing what God has called us to do, and prioritizing our spiritual life as the most important part of our lives. Now, any mention of the end times is sure to bring about speculation and debate. When will it happen? What are the signs that the end is near? What will be the order of events? You haven't told us any of that. You know, there are actually some churches that so emphasize this that their end time theology 
is part of who they are as a church, and you dare not attend that church if you don't agree with their end-time theology. You can find people that will give you all of the answers. You can find books or go to seminars that claim to have every question answered for you, and they're going to give you charts and graphs, perhaps maybe timelines and diagrams with every detail. I want to encourage you to stick to the sure Word of God. Yes, we need to study eschatology. We don't need to forsake it, but we need to study it faithfully from God's Word, not through the lens of some supposed guru who claims to have all of the answers. There is indeed a danger of being led astray by such teaching, which which is why last week we kept hearing, be on your guard. False teaching and false prophets means we must stay awake. So are you awake this morning? I don't mean physically. Surely at this point you know that's not what I'm talking about. And surely now that the sermon is almost over with, you have awakened by now. I'm talking about spiritual alertness. Are you at your post doing the work that God has called and equipped you to do? Are you being faithful in the present, persevering in your obedience to Him, even if it might look like it doesn't matter? We look around and we are quick to conclude that there is no justice, nothing beyond the ordinary events of daily life. Same old thing, day after day. But God's Word, which we've seen today is the only sure foundation for our future, paints a much different picture. One day, everything will change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns for His children, which is why the Bible closes in the book of Revelation by saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Is your desire for Christ to return? Will you remain faithful and obedient until that time comes? Stay awake. Be on your guard. Jesus is coming again.